Welcome to our Friday Five Live podcast hosted by Meg Foster. Meg has spent 20 years in higher education focused on student success initiatives and working in areas such as orientation, faculty development, online learning, student leadership, and first-year initiatives. Happy Friday, everyone. Um, we've made it to February. January only felt like 300 days long. Um, so we hope everybody's having a great start um, to the month um, and has some plans for rest and renewal this weekend. That's always very important. Um, just as a reminder, please do put in any questions that you might have in the chat. We'll make sure while I've prepared questions um, today, we always love hearing from you all and the, and the things that you would like us to discuss. So um, we are very fortunate to have with us today, um, Celia Esposito Noy. Um, I have, we will use doctor only when um, asked to do so. Um, and as many of you might be aware, we've uh, created this kind of conversations on leadership this academic year um, in memory of uh, dear colleague Denise Sweat, um, who had spent really her career in the California community college system, um, touching the lives of many colleagues and many students as well. And so um, we're, we're taking some time during Friday Five Lives, uh, both in the fall and also the spring semester, to have some conversations um, regarding leadership, which was an important, um, a, a, an important calling to Denise. So so grateful to have Celia with us today. I mean, your career has really spanned the gamut um, in higher education. You're currently the superintendent and president of um, Solano Community College, um, for which I understand is in the Bay Area. Um, but you have worked in all variety of manners um, in the world of higher education. And we're so fortunate to have your vision, that knowledge base that you bring with you um, today as we kind of talk through leadership. So welcome, Celia. Great. Thank you so much. And thanks to Innovative Educators for um, hosting this series in honor of um, my former colleague, Denise Sweat. Uh, she and I, as I was sharing with Melissa a little earlier, um, we always ran into each other. While we never worked together at uh, the same institution, we always were working uh, collaboratively throughout our uh, careers in the California Community College system. So um, I do miss her. She, she was really a, a wonderful colleague for many of us, especially those of us who came out of student services. So thank you for hosting in her honor. Yes, she, um, you know, was always not afraid to ask the question. Um, and uh, she definitely loved to keep me on my toes um, when we when we would have conversations in this venue. So would, I always find such value, you know, as as. Um, even though, yeah, I've spent 20 years in higher education and I always say that I dye my hair um, because of that work. I'm sure many of us have as well. I always love hearing how folks come to kind of a leadership position because, you know, there's not really one size fits all. Um, and I'm seeing more trends of folks who have come out of student services moving into presidency positions, particularly in um, kind of community colleges. So, Celia, so you would love to kind of hear from you about sort of your journey to where you are now, if that. Well, I often say um, half jokingly that um, you end up in these positions when you don't do proper career planning, uh, because there is nothing about my um, past or even my career that, that would necessarily lead me here. Um, folks who I've worked with for many years know that I always said, oh, no, I'm not going to be a president. No way. Uh, because I had a great time being a vice president of student services for, mm -hmm. for 10 years. And I always say though, that's one of the coveted positions because um, you are not serving in that capacity where you are always out there representing the college. 
and you get to do some incredible behind the scenes work to really shift uh, the culture of an institution. Um, and, and you're held at a different level of accountability. Uh, and it gives you a little bit more freedom than when you move into these presidencies. So uh, I've been in this position here at Solano College. Now I just am starting my seventh year. Um, and I think I get double years for the COVID years as a president because uh, they they felt like dog years uh, and we're not done yet. Um, but prior to that, I actually started my career at Chabot College in Hayward um, as the tutoring center supervisor. And I had no plans of working in higher ed. I was, like I share with many folks, supposed to go to law school like everybody else was at the time. Uh, I had an interest in doing policy work. I'd done some community work before that, um, but I found myself attracted to college campus. Maybe I was romanticizing about my time in, in student government and as a student and you know how wonderful that was. And I thought, well, I could do that for a job. So that's really how I got started in this system. Uh, and then I found a graduate program that was designed for folks who want to work in higher ed administration. And so I took a year to go do that job um, and then worked. I, I worked in private, um, a very small private, I call it funky little college in San Francisco. It doesn't exist anymore, um, but really learned some innovative strategies and different ways of thinking about what does educational leadership look like. Um, but I did miss the call from the community colleges. And so that's when I decided to return and have been working in the California community college system since then. So I started in 89, I took a break for a few years in the nineties, and then I returned in uh, 98 and have been in the system since then. And, and I think I love hearing how, you know, your experiences have kind of given you this perspective that you're able to sort of look at things a little bit differently, maybe because um, you know, and, and I'd love to hear from you your thoughts about kind of leading from this place in a system um, that, that is, that is an experience as we've talked about, you know, I'm in the community college system in Virginia and we're 23 institutions and we have some independence and some things that are, you know, it's uh, very much, we're going to work as a system. Um, we also laugh. I'm sure this is our bias. I'm sure every, I would be curious to see if California has this same feeling. There is a feeling sometimes that the closer you are to the central office, you know, for the, the more the magnifying glass is on you, right, right? And then as you get farther and farther away geographically, our perception is there's more freedom in those outer limits. I'm sure that's not the reality, but the perception. So yeah, would, would love kind of what, as you're in, you've been in the system now for, I mean, just a couple of decades, right? And I'm sure you've seen enormous change. I'm sure you've also seen some um, times where we've returned to things. Uh, all what my um, one of my mentors has a, a saying like the old will be made new again, right? You're like, well, we actually did this, but it's all new this time. So oh, yeah, it's like bad fashion. It always comes back around, maybe every decade or so, <laughs> and and that is the case, I think, in this system and anything that we refer to as a system. Um, you, you know, fo folks believe that um, the community college system is open access and, and, you know, designed to address these inequities and barriers. And, and I have to say, and maybe it's because I've been doing this for 30 some years, um, 
I don't see it that way. Uh, we, we have developed barriers that make it challenging even to do the application for the community college system. And there's some research that shows the percentage of folks who start the application and then abandon it at some point. Um, you know, before AB705, we had all of these ways in which we kept students from accessing college level math and English. And one of the interesting things that I used to always say during that time was, you know, at a private research university, as a student, I could just write a letter to the instructor saying, I'd like to take your third year law class and explain why I thought I could do it. And I was in. And, and we set up these really difficult uh, roadblocks for students. And yet we talk about that as a way to ensure their success. Uh, while we're trying to balance that with access. So for me, I have a, a lot of criticism about our current system and, and the role I've played in that as a leader. And to what extent in my current position, am I willing to push back on that? Okay. So that for me is sort of the big challenge that, that we have really not just now, but really every decade or so. I think the, the leadership, we need to turn around and, and take a look and say, what have we been complying with that we should not be? Um, folks know that I've been uh, very vocal about my concern about uh, college athletics. And I don't mean just NCAA, I also mean our local uh, statewide association. And I often will say that uh, student athletics is the last of legalized indentured servitude. Um, and how we set limits for our student athletes. And then what is our responsibility as leaders to say, we're, we're not going to do that. Why are we arguing about whether or not we're going to feed our student athletes before they go to a competition? Why are we having that conversation? So I, that's why I'm saying these are the sorts of things that I think come back around over and over. And of course, during you know a 30 plus year career, how I've responded to those issues has changed over time. And I will say to those of you who are, who are younger and out there at the start of your career, you may get to a point where you feel like, you know what, it's time to take the risk and to push back on these conventional notions that we have uh, accepted and that I've been leading uh, as a part of a system. So I really encourage us to do that as we go through our careers. Any advice on how to do that? Um, because, uh, you know, sometimes uh, we laugh in meetings that change is like water on a rock. Like it, it's, you know, in higher ed institutions. And, and, and this also is a second question. I mean, we're not known for changing quickly, right? Um, and there's some probably good to that. But I also think, you know, you and I've talked about higher ed is very different and maybe we need to respond more quickly. So, um, so sorry to give you a two-part question there, but... I think one of the ways is that, you know, we don't do any of this by ourselves. You, you have to become part of and build a solid team of folks. And they're not folks who always think the way you do, but those who might push back. Uh, you know, when folks will say, well, well how, do, how do you go about looking for a job? And I said, well, it's not the title and it's not the salary. Uh, it's who I will work for and who I will work with, because that for me always has determined my success. It, you know, what part of a team um, am I going to contribute to? What part of a team am I going to help build? And I think those, that's an important piece of this. Um, and then, of course, collectively, 
it feels a little easier to take risks and to push back when you're not there doing it just by yourself. Now, there are many folks who have done this by themselves, really pushed back on, um, on some concepts that um, really required revisiting. And so I appreciate those who have done the work for many of us. And I think we have a responsibility to keep pushing back and to continue questioning how we are doing this work and are we really contributing to transformation or are we just reproducing inequities in different settings or in different formats? It's important. And you make such a great point about not the title, not the salary, it's the people, right, that we're working with. And, um, and I have often said, I can do just about anything if, if I'm part of a good team, if I'm surrounded by good people that I'm excited about working with that um, make me feel energized. And um, yeah. yeah, well, so as we think about, you know, this notion of like, uh, of change, of, of making, of, of examining our systems that, and I, I can think of so many, you know, you mentioned um, in the days before when there was developmental and remedial education, be fascinated to know on the call if our, our system has moved away from those um, kinds of classes as well, how many of us are in places that aren't using um, those sorts of, of courses anymore uh, for lots of very valid reasons, like we, we understand what a barrier it is to degree completion. But as we look at those sorts of barriers that we create, is there any, any recommendations, any advice you have for us on, you know, we're pulling in our good team, how, how do we begin to say, this is something we need to change? And I don't know, are there systems that you're like, oh, this has been a particularly, you know, design um, agencies and things that you're like, this has really helped us move forward. Um, not, not just in, I think we're all pretty good at identifying sometimes the barriers, right? Um, but then at, at making that transition to shift. Well, I think sometimes we operate off of these um, assumptions or understandings that we believe are mandated, when in fact they might just be interpretations. Uh, and even if they are mandated, why are we not saying, well, you know, I, I get that that was established in 1973, and maybe it's time for us to revisit that. Um, I think that is really critical when we're talking about transformative leadership is we, we have to challenge all of these notions. Uh, you know, I had an opportunity, um, as probably many of us have during the pandemic, where we were using the CARES money um, to support staff who were working from home by providing them with a stipend to, you know, for resources. And much to the credit of a student worker, he came to me and he said, well, what about the rest of us who are working from home on behalf of the college? Where's our stipend? I said, you're right. We completely missed that for our temporary classified and first student workers. And so we made sure to provide them with the same financial assistance so that they could continue working for us. And, and what was interesting is that this is an individual that some folks really sort of you know, felt uncomfortable when the individual pushed back or questioned us. And I said, that's the type of person we have got to welcome into our circle to really push back on these conventional notions about sort of how we do things and say, well, what about over here? Why aren't we doing this? So, um, 
you know, we can, we can, I want to sort of transition and talk a little bit about the pandemic and sort of how that has created opportunities for us to be thinking differently and really to invite folks in to push back a little bit um, on those notions of how we operate and how we do business here. Um, as folks know, in California, the ed code is very prescriptive. Um, California community college system still sort of is under the K-14 umbrella. And a lot of what we do is really K-12-ish, as I like to call it, um, and quite restrictive. And so one of the things that we've been able to do during the pandemic is say, well, wait a minute, we have to look at things differently. Uh, we have to be more thoughtful and creative. And let's start challenging these notions of what we thought we um, could and could not do and start really dig into the ed code and see where there are opportunities for change. So um, th those are some critical pieces that I think in, in leadership we, we have to do. and We have to use opportunities, whether it's the pandemic or other uh, conditions or settings, whether uh, whatever those are, to really examine what we've been doing and how we can start doing things differently. Is, uh, you know, and it's so important, I think, to having a conversation just this morning about the pandemic and, and what we think will be those lasting shifts, you know, in our um, society and education. I mean, uh, you know, I, uh, I was a history major, so I get all excited about these kinds of discussions, but, um, so as you're seeing in, in your, in your place in your career, you know, you're mentioning that this has been an important opportunity really to exam, examine practices, examine, um, you said, you know, code, educational codes and these mandates and, and things like that. One of the things we had asked Denise to do at one point, um, uh, was to vision the future for us. So we'd kind of love if you, if you have a crystal ball there and you want to dust it off for us a little bit, but what do you think is, are you going to see in the next five years, maybe 10 years out? Well, I'm hopeful, you know, th this, again, this is a system that's, that's highly regulated. Um, you know, one of the conditions that, that we've been talking about is sort of the attendance accounting mechanism uh, in particular uh, what, does or does not support us from pivoting quickly. When we go from online to back to in-person to back to online, depending on if it's synchronous or asynchronous determines how you do coding for attendance accounting in order to claim apportionment. I, I mean, there's something absurd about that. We have to be honest about the fact that there's something absurd about having to think through all of those pieces in order to be responsive to serving students um, quickly and, and in, in the best way that we can. So my, my hopefulness is that we will begin to dig a little deeper at all of these ed codes and Title V uh, guidelines from the chancellor's office and really start to push on those a little bit more and rethink some of those things. Um, we have seen that happen, for example, on um, correspondence courses. Um, many colleges, community colleges, started doing correspondence courses in the California state um, uh, prison facilities. Uh, Solano College was one of the first to do in-person instruction only at California State Prison Solano and the California Medical Facility, which are located in Vacaville, uh, where we also have a center. Uh, and then having to shift to correspondence when the pandemic started. 
and how effective are we in teaching through that correspondence method? And did we have to do a substantive change report for accreditation for that? Or were we able to say, no, here's how we can ensure quality teaching and learning will happen in this particular format. So my, my hope is that we look at a lot of the attendance accounting methods that we require, that we look at what we ask colleges to do uh, in order to report any changes. Um, our curriculum review process at each of the colleges, sometimes it could take a year or two. Other places have methods in which they use to fast track changes in curriculum. Um, and I get that, you know, we're the largest public system in the world. And as people say, it's hard to move a big ship quickly. And at the same time, uh, if you're headed for dry land, uh, you got to move that ship quickly. And you have to look at where, where some of the limits are and what are some of the things that maybe we need to really revisit those and remove them. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give an, another example of where we've done that. Um, folks may not remember that in the Ed Code, there's a section that said, if you had a drug offense or sex offense, uh, had a record that community college couldn't hire you. Well, through the Fair Chance Act, through Ban the Box movement, uh, through conversations that some of us led statewide uh, and working with Chancellor's Office Legal uh, Department, we were able to say, here's another way to interpret the education code without violating it, without changing it, and still complying with the Ban the Box Movement, the Fair Chance Act, and being able to employ individuals who, for example, for us, were our previous students mm -hmm. and who really had some skills that we needed here. So that is something that I really want to encourage all of us, regardless of our title, regardless of where we are in the organization, that we have to start looking at those longstanding practices and say, wait a minute, we, we need to revisit this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and as I, I um, read so much about what's going on in our country, you know, as far as the higher education um, world and, and, you know, enrollment significantly down in our community colleges, um, and I know California in particular, I think has seen that, um, and, and also a concern about who is not coming to college now. Um, and that tends to be our students of color, our under-resourced students, our low-income students. Um, and, and looking at this trend as well and a desire to increase um, credentials for adult, you know, adult students. That I know that's a, a lot, right? When we look at kind of who's coming to our institutions or who is not coming to our institutions. But that's so important as you, you know, you talk about equity and access. So thoughts about, uh, um, you know, how can we, as we're taking down these barriers, um, making sure that we're really reaching out to those students to say, there's a place for you here. And, and I'm thinking about, in particular, you know, some of the thoughts about credentialing, um, getting students, you know, through programs a little more rapidly so they can get out into our workforces. Um, I, I loved your example of the students that you had, you know, educated who you then needed to hire and maybe trying to think creatively of how you can make sure that happens. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, this system is, is built really to accommodate those of us who work in it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we, we have legislation 
um, about shared governance, about authority, about curriculum, about what it has to look like. Um, and, and then it means it's, it's a little bit more challenging to then introduce this, well, here's what students are saying they want or need. And how do we go about responding to what students or potential students are looking for or are asking for? Um, and, and, you know, that is, I think, a constant sort of give and take that we're, we're struggling with here in, in the system. Um, I get you know, that we all have these responsibilities in our roles and, and certain authority. I can't dictate the curriculum under the ed code. Um, I also am concerned about how long it takes us to respond to changes that need to be made in our curriculum. Um, and, and I have concern about maybe that's just not all that attractive for a lot of students. I mean, Folks may recall that when University of Phoenix started this concept of fully online and uh, you know these short-term courses in which to move quickly through a degree, you know, is blasphemy for some folks in, in higher education, and they're not going to get a quality education. Well, you know, in fact, there are many folks who have gone through those programs successfully and have a quality education uh, and know that that can work. So. Um, I think all of us need to find ways in which we can keep asking the question, well, why can't we do this differently? And what is the value of certification? Is there value? And why do students have to declare, you know, a major in their first semester? What happened to the value of exploration? How do we guide students through exploration, helping them to identify strengths? So I think the, these are these are the difficult questions for which I don't know that I have answers or strategies for. I think those are the challenges that I'm looking for help with. Well, fear not. We don't ask for you know, as as I so as I promised you, you don't have to be the expert. And I love that you know that ties so nicely back into that team building, right? It it takes having a team, whether that's at your institution or within your system or um, the folks who support you, you know, professionally outside of, of those kinds of areas. You, you made a point about listening to students and, and um, you know, it was one of Denise's favorite things, I think, to do was to make sure we were listening to our students. And so, um, and I, I also have seen, you know, working in, in systems that sometimes the, the two people who maybe don't get quite as much um, listened to, that's not good English, my mother would be horrified, um, are sometimes our students and then our younger staff people, right? They just don't have that voice. Um, maybe they're not at the table. Um, and yet often those are the folks who are most intimately aware of what is going on, right? Um, in the hourly um, experience of being students at our institution. So recommendations, thoughts, are there ways that you're listening to those voices that you find particularly helpful or um, just making sure that, you know, when we're sitting down at our tables to make decisions, that, that it's not me in a vacuum, you know, thinking, well, I've, I've read this policy, you know, the Chronicle yeah, I, I read had this piece. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think, this is always a challenge also in, in the role of superintendent president is that there are um, a lot of things to attend to and folks to attend to, and it becomes convenient 
to then um, have other folks do the work of listening to students and having the conversations and deciphering sort of what students are and are not saying about their experiences here. Um, and so I, I think one of the challenges is encouraging um, staff, supervisors, managers at all levels to really enlist students to become student workers on campus. I think that is one of the intimate ways in which we find out what the student experience is like, both as a student in a classroom and a student receiving services. I think that's also the number one way to retain students, frankly, is by having them as student employees, uh, because there's levels of accountability that are built in there for both uh, the student as an employee to a supervisor or to colleagues, and then the student in the classroom setting. Uh, and I think accountability is a big feature that helps with retention and also creates clarity for students and for, for us to better understand what needs to be happening. Now, I will say to you that students, it's not their job to come here and tell us how we should be doing things. We shouldn't be expecting that of them. Um, we need to have those skills. We need to have the ability to decipher what it is that students need based on things that are or are not occurring. Um, and, and so what I don't like to do is say, well, what are the students saying about this as the only way in which we gather data or information? Um, or, you know, folks want to say, well, well the, you know, the students are going to take care of this. Well, as students, we all need guidance. We need help understanding um, the organizational structure. We need um, help understanding sort of how do we participate in a way that still allows us to be students, which is our primary goal and interest. So that's why I always think about on-campus work as one of those ways in which to enlist students to help um, an organization think about what we can be doing differently and how we can do it better. Um, and then also uh, really helps students understand how to build relationships on campus and, and keep them here on campus. So that's, that's a, one strategy that I think about. I think all of the, you know, the surveys, of course, are all essential. But um, when I go out on campus and student doesn't know who I am, I'm just there. And it looks like maybe I'm a grown up and they can ask me, uh, you know, hey, I'm looking for such and such. It, I don't know that students care what my role is as much as can you answer my question right now and can you help me? And then helping them think about, you know, once you do that, make sure you do such and such, you know, make sure you find out about, you know, uh, the textbook rental that's available and you can get information about that. So I, I, I think those are ways that we don't think about um, in which we really can touch students and help them um, be more successful as students, and then also help us in better understanding what students need when they're here on campus. It's such an interesting, you know, I know there are four-year models where students work, right, as part of their experience in an institution. Um, I don't know of any two-year institutions where that's the model, but I also know that I've never worked with a student employee who hasn't graduated. Um, and many of them go on to work in education in some way, shape or form, because um, yeah, that's, that's an intriguing, and, and, and what an important point you make, because you're right, our students 
their role is not to tell us what we are and are not doing well. And I think sometimes we're guilty about relying on them too much in that way. Yeah. Um, a, a really, a really important point. So to, to kind of do a few uh, touch points on, on the questions that I have prepared for you. Sorry, Celia, I tend to um, kind of jump a little bit all over the place, but I appreciate so much your, your I've just, I've taken copious notes as you've been talking. Um, team building. You, you mentioned, you know, the importance of making sure that we've got teams that represent lots of different, that they're not all Celia followers. Yes, you know, um, and um, recommendations for how we can really build some, some teams. Is there, again, any resources? You know, this kind of last question is how do you, resources you might use to guide your work, but yeah, but just love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think about, you know, the good to great Collins book from some time ago. Um, I really like to do strengths-based team building. Um, and among managers, that's easy to do because you rely on the and other duties as assigned part of the job announcement. Um, but what I like to do is really identify what do folks like doing? And that's something they usually do well. And then have them take responsibility for doing that particular work. So it, it's not driven by the job title or where they're situated or whether they're an academic dean or a student services vice president. The question is, where do the strengths lie? And how do we do a strengths-based approach to um, creating a leadership team that um, we really, we really get the best out of folks? And I think that's key. Um, I always will say, you know, we hire for character and we'll, we'll teach the skills a little later. That's a little easier. Um, but folks with integrity and commitment. And um, I like folks who are open to coaching. I think that is a real quality that we often um, do not think about often enough when we're doing hiring. Uh, but I've always found that folks who are open to coaching tend to do really very well. And they, um, they stretch and they're willing to ask questions and they're willing to also uh, learn to be resourceful and looking for answers um, and bringing ideas to the table. So, um, you know, that, that ability to be coachable, to be open, uh, focusing on strengths, I think are just some of the ways in which you build a team. Then there's got to be a level of integrity that folks have to operate with. Um, and, you know, we all have our different definitions of what that looks like. Um, I want folks to be able to see where they are contributing members of the college community. Where, where do they do their best work? Um, are they heard? If not, what, what other spaces do we need to create where folks can be heard? Um, and so I expect all of us in our roles, regardless of whether we are uh, faculty or managers or staff, but really to create space where folks can be heard, uh, because that really strengthens us as an organization to be able to look at things differently, to have fresh ideas, and to really capitalize on the strengths that people bring to the campus. How do you go about doing um like within your year, for example, I, we're just also busy doing, right? There is so much work to be done um, that it takes, I think some, um, in my experience, at least 
um, real thought to setting aside time to do strengths assessment, to, to do this kind of these team building activities. Um, you know, you mentioned being coachable, wondering if you actually, you know, have any formal kind of coaching or mentoring um, sort of programs with staff. And I'm really intrigued by this because I am seeing so many talented people leave student services um, and they're leaving in, in what I am seeing for two reasons. One, they're, they're simply not a clear path to for professional growth and development. Um, and two, the, the position or available is no longer really flexible to, you know, the fact that they have children or um, just any number of things. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, when, when I got hired here at Solano College and one of the questions was about professional development and I said, you know, professional development begins at home and it happens every day. It's not just going to conferences. It's not you know, going to get um, additional degrees or certificates. It, it's really a practice that has to happen every day at home. And folks have to have a commitment to supporting professional development. So, you know, whether it is um, an opportunity for folks to submit innovative ideas to a staff meeting or for folks to ask questions like, well, why can't we do that? And for someone else being willing to say, yeah, why can't we do that? Let's, let's look at how we can do that. I, I think the working remotely is a, is a great example. Um, I think it's fair to say that at least in California, there weren't a lot of California community colleges that were allowing folks to work remotely, except maybe for Calbright. Um, but the rest of us who are more traditional brick and mortar campuses, probably we're not thinking about re working remotely. I know for us, we have had incredible um, effectiveness, frankly, with folks working remotely. Um, fewer grievances, fewer claims about harassment, fewer complaints, fewer employee squabbles, and folks have felt really good about how productive they've been working remotely. And so the question might be, okay, well, you know, we're all going to be coming back at some point in our lifetime. Um, and so we'll just all roll back in five days a week, 40 hours a week. And we're saying, I don't think so. Why would we do that? Let's take a look at, at what's worked. I mean, one of the things I will share jokingly is I haven't received a complaint from a student saying, geez, I really miss waiting two hours in line to see somebody at the financial aid counter. When are you going to bring that back? So we, we, we haven't had that. And our staff have really done an exceptional job of being responsive to students via email, phone, scheduling in person if it's needed. And so um, I don't necessarily see that we all need to be back here 40 hours a week, five days a week, working some traditional you know, nine to five schedule in order to serve students. I think students have found that what we've been able to provide them in the way of timely services and the information they need uh, is working for them. So th that's a new idea that many of us, I know prior to the pandemic, I wasn't even thinking about how we would we do that. So I, I think that's a, a great opportunity for us to say, you know, we, we can do this a little differently. Mm -hmm. It's, it's absolutely been one of my most exciting things to see um, is somebody who was uh, 
I think one of the first employees to work at a distance for my institution over a decade, a decade ago, um, and have long advocated for students not just needing walk-up services, right? Um, Our students are not only, are not really available eight to five Monday through Friday. Oh, 3.30 on Fridays. Yes. Right. Um, Then, uh, so I'm really, I'm excited about that change that we're seeing happening in our institutions because I I do think we're providing better service to our students um, in that manner. Mm -hmm. Now, Now, I do, I will say that there's something to be said for waiting in line. Um, one of the things that I used to, to do um, was work the lines, you know, during that first week of the semester. And a student would ask me a question and I'd say to them, well, here, here's an option. But ask this student behind you what he's doing in order to manage workload and class course load. And so create these opportunities for students to actually enlist each other okay. as helpers. Uh, and, you know, what we found was that in some cases, students were like, oh, that's that's a really good idea. Right. Or um, the unofficial ratemyprofessor.com would happen right there in line. Uh, and, and for many students, that is something that is missed. So uh, what my my suggestion is we need to find a balance where we create those opportunities for students to engage with the, with their peers for information and feedback. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know that's something we're all, I think, eager to move into for this school year, coming school year, because I don't know that it's going to happen this one, but but for next year that we can begin to recreate those opportunities for engagement that maybe have been missing the last several. Well, Celia, I just want to say thank you. I have taken so, so many notes. I, I, you know, the, the idea that we need to really examine carefully um, the the processes we have, the procedures we have, the policies, the three P's as I call them, our policies, to say, how are these creating, are they creating access? Are we creating barriers? Um, And making sure that we're involving, you know, our diverse group of folks in having um, those conversations on our campuses. And um, it's just so so uh, I think important for us um, to hear. Um, Stacy does have a question for us. Um, the ratemyprofessor.com comment. Uh, this is a tool I have referred students to. Do you think there'll be a time when administrators might use this tool to help develop their faculty? Oh, as somebody who worked in faculty development, I feel like that's a, a million dollar question and also the third rail sort of, um, yes. Yeah. Well. Um, I do remember a time when ratemyprofessors.com had just come out um, and a faculty member came to me and said, can't you stop students from using that? I said, yeah, no, I don't control the internet and uh, I don't control. But how awesome thought you had that power, Celia. Wow. Yes, yes, that was quite um, impressive. However, I don't have that. And my question was, what is it about it that's problematic? What can you learn from it? And then there might be some parts of it that you just need to discount and just not think about, right? Because um, these days, everybody has a place to give their opinions and their thoughts. And you have to decide how much of this is really valuable for me to attend to and how much of it maybe I just need to ignore. So um, I'm not saying it should be part of a, a faculty evaluation. I think it's helpful for all of us to take a look and see what are students' expectations 
that either are or are not being met. And then attend to those expectations at the start of a semester, right? And I used to share this with faculty oftentimes when I was um, helping them understand how to student discipline and effective classroom management. Um, I would say address student expectations, talk about students who were successful in your class in a previous semester and why, um, rather than, you know, you need to go to tutoring early on. Instead, share a story. You know, I want to tell you about a student who struggled with the first quiz, and here's what she said to me um, about what was really helpful. Leave it there at that. So I think there are different ways in which we can use all of these resources um, and help them uh, or help us be more effective in our work with students and help students in, in manage expectations as well. And, and that's just such an important piece because I think, you know, a lot of the research I've done talks about that disconnect between student expectations and faculty expectations. And, and that's um, a lot of times when we lose students. My children are personally really glad that nobody's ever given me a chili pepper rating on um, ratemyprofessor.com, which if you're not familiar with it, that's for all the attractive instructors. They think that would be really weird. So um, we, on that note, we have- You know that some faculty in some disciplines wrote about hoping for a chili pepper so, in their career. It's um, it, it's definitely a, a tool that can be um, provide some opportunities for humor, yes. which um, is not not necessarily a bad thing in our world. So yes, well, Celia, thank you, thank you for your time today, for all the leadership that you are giving us um, as far as recommendations, tips, and thoughts, and things to consider, but then also the work that you're doing. Um, at your institution and within your system. Um, I'm just very, very grateful for your time. I know it's so busy, these, these dog years of COVID. Um, and uh, I think you're right. I give you double um, the, the year service for those. Uh, let us know if we can write a letter in, in support of that. But um, thank you for your time. Thank you for our audience for listening in today. Um, we're, we're excited to continue our conversations um, this spring semester regarding leadership in honor of our um, colleague and friend, Denise Sweat. Um, and we'll have uh, next month, um, we're going to have one of my former students come back, Reggie Strobel, and he's going to talk with us specifically about supporting Black males um, through the college process. So um, excited to continue that conversation we started in the fall semester. Um, so I hope you'll listen in. Um, and thank you again, Celia. Everyone have a wonderful weekend. May there be time for rest and renewal and um, an opportunity for humor too. Thank you. Thanks, Celia. Take care. Yeah. Friday Five Live is brought to you by Innovative Educators. Innovative Educators offers six online services for your onboarding support and training needs. Visit us at innovativeeducators.org to see how we can support your student success initiatives.